David Kelly doesn't like to claim to have come up with the term design thinking, even though most people would probably say he did. But regardless of who coined it, as founder of IDEO in the Stanford D School, he's been one of the most influential proponents of design thinking and human-centered design in general. When it comes to bringing together engineering, product, and design teams early in the design process and aligning those teams towards a common goal, design thinking has few equals, and it should be part of the toolkit for every product-driven company. In this episode, Eli and Aaron speak with David about what it takes to bring designers and engineers together, how our workspace influences our work, and how we can encourage creative confidence in our companies. Enjoy their chat with David, and thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. So, hey, David, good morning. Morning. Thanks for being on the show. I've got uh, David Kelly here with me, and we're at David's office at the Stanford D School. David's the founder of IDEO and of the D School. And uh, back in the day, back in the 90s, he was my advisor, so I've known him for a little while. Um, <laughs> And really excited to have him here. And um, David, we're going to go through um, a few parts of your story. But one thing that I'm curious about is um, this term design thinking. And I think the concept of design thinking probably predated maybe even both of our tenures here at Stanford. But um, there's some folks, Tim Brown included, I think said that you maybe coined the term. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, um, and how the, the term design thinking first started to spread. Sure. Uh, I don't know if I coined the term. Certainly probably didn't. Pro other people have put those two simple words together before. I mean, it was certainly an original moment. Uh, and the way it happened was my students, you know, uh, being designers are kind of broadly focused. Let's say they're like me, they're design junkies. They want something new, try something new, try something they never heard of before, rather than getting deeper and deeper into one subject. <clears throat> And that was good, except when it came time to getting a job or something, you remember this. And, you know, everybody, they were kind of confused because everybody else had a, had a depth and they were, their depth was, you know, how to routinely come up with new ideas. Right. And that doesn't really work <laughs> your business card. I'm a expert at coming up with, you know, innovating routinely. Right. <laughs> at least it didn't then it's closer to becoming be true now. Anyway. And so they, they would, they, they did fine like, like Eli, like yourself. Um, but, uh, th there was that moment. And so they kept, you know, it kept bothered me that I couldn't make them feel better. And so I kept saying, you're, you're, um, you're expert at 
at design methodology. You know, that's what you're expert at. You're not a mechanical engineer or electrical engineer. You're an engineer, but your but your uh, your superpower is how you um, kind of routinely come up with new ideas and stuff. And that went along for a while and just didn't make any progress. And then it just happened one time. I said, you know, this is a way of thinking. I mean, what you have, you know, you're a design thinker, you know, design thinking. And so in my life, anyways, that's how it got started was it was the notion that, that we were a much bigger deal than just our hands. You know, I mean, you know, those of us who love the shop, as we all do, you know, like, you know, we're, we're kind of thought of as, uh, you know, the kind of maker, grubby maker types, and we're not big thinkers, right? And so somehow that um, it took off that the notion that thinking in the way a designer thinks is, uh, is, a, is a way that could actually contribute uh, to the world, that it's a, it's a, and it's an approach that's a bit different. And so it's liable to come up with new ideas. And that's when, when people started looking for, okay, how am I going to innovate? You know, there's this, you know, I love this IBM survey with 1500 CEOs and said, what's on your mind? And they said, basically, I'm trying to make my companies more creative. And they looked around and we were just standing there, you know, and it was great. I mean, I say we moved from the kids table to the adult table because of design thinking. That's that's uh that's interesting because what Eli and I keep seeing throughout the industry is uh, design thinking has become something much bigger than what it was originally intended to be as this this tool for understanding the methodology a tool that really helped designers uh, you know focus on their work get clarity about how to get to the best solution but now we hear a lot of CEOs VPs. Uh, it's a way into design. It's a way for them to understand design and start to embrace it. And it's it's become this like the it's it's almost like the the Jolly Roger uh, in in corporations where you know like you fly this flag of we're going to try to turn the tide and um, make this company more focused on design to think about design uh, more holistically. It's like this inroad into design for people who don't fancy themselves designers. How did, how did that happen? Uh, what's going on? Sure. Well, I think problems got very complex, um, you know, with, with all of the stuff that's going on in the world and, the, you know, kind of the globalization of things and, the, and the, you know, technology moving at the pace it does and so forth that, you know, the problems are quite complex. And so, you know, the, the kind of stay at home, one discipline attacking a problem just hasn't been as effective as when you can get multiple minds with different points of view uh, together and actually work on those on those uh, those kind of problems. So the beauty of design thinking in, and design in general is that it's human centered. So what I found was the way it happened for me was that you know there's lots of people talking about multidisciplinary all this kind of stuff, but it didn't really happen. I mean, we would go to a meeting and it was supposed to be multidisciplinary. And we kind of divide up the money and go do what we were going to do anyway, you know. But because I believe that because our methodology is so human-centered that no matter what the group is, you get the manufacturing guy and the business person and the, you know, the philosopher and the, you know, whoever, whatever you got on your team and you get them together, as long as you focus on the human, that's something that everybody can get behind. You know, you have this sense in, in business terms, you you kind of frame the problem from the cu the customer's point of view. You know, you're, you're, you're now, and, and that's 
that's relevant to everybody, as opposed to you frame it from a technological point of view, you frame it from a business view, that excludes you know, several of the disciplines. But if you frame it from the human point of view, then everybody can sign up. And I think that's what's happened is that that, that methodology allowed for, um, for real multidisciplinary kind of radical uh, approach to these big problems. And that's, it's, it's the only way they're gonna get solved. So, so given that sort of human-centered bias and that interdisciplinary focus, are there any uh, recent stories that have surprised you about the power of design thinking to change things in, in large organizations? Yeah, no, there's just so, uh, there's just so many where, uh, where it's happened, you know, and there's different companies that's just bought the whole deal, you know, SAP, Intuit, companies like that are really uh, focused the company around uh, uh, design thinking and that kind of being able to routinely innovate, put a bunch of ideas on the shelf and then choose from them. Uh, when you said it, you know, I mean, my, my IO does about 400 projects a year and then there's all these ones at D-School. So I'm always surprised when somebody asks me a question like that, what, which one pops into my mind? And when you said that, uh, for some reason, Liberation Technologies popped into my mind. This is a group uh, that I'm very proud of, of students that um, went to Nairobi, Africa, and they were um, kind of sponsored and they were like working on fire prevention. And so when they were, before they immersed, they were thinking about fire prevention. That's what we do. We sit around in a room with our laptops open and think we're so smart and we try to solve the problem that way. It just kind of wastes the time, but we do it. And then when you actually immerse yourself in the culture, the design, the need finding, the, you know, the, the empathy work that we do, you start to actually come up with you kind of non-obvious things that are really worth, you know, that have real value. And so, so in liberation technology, we're working on fire prevention. They go into the, to the villages in, in Nairobi, Kenya, and they, and they think they're going to keep these, you know, um, kind of shanty buildings from falling down. And, but when they actually get into it, they, uh, they kind of build this empathy and they realize that what people are really worried about there they're worried about the fire, but only to the extent that it ruins their documents, burns their documents. What they're very concerned about, their need, their non-obvious, really gut need is that, um, that these documents allow them to stay in that building. They allow them to stay in that country. They, you know, like they can get arrested if they don't have them. I mean, it's just like the documents are so important these pieces of paper, right? And so um, the students, uh, some of them worked on fire prevention, but the but once they kind of used our principles and really understood stuff, they um they they um, decided that the main thing to do was to deal with these documents, and so they got pickup trucks and put scanners in them and drove around and scanned the documents, um and put them up in the cloud and then proved to them that they could pull them down anytime <laughs> they wanted, and um and that was so, so that kind of pivot to the where the real human places to the to the meaningful place to the people that you're trying to design for is just uh, it's so cathartic. And you, like once you latch on to that, you know, that you have this insight about what's really going on here and what I what what good I could really do. And it could be in a commercial company. I mean, I, this happens to be have a social component, but, but you get to that point where you have conviction that you have an insight that is, uh, kind of emotional, meaningful human, right? And then boy, then you're off to the races. Cause then you just have to take the risk that you can find a technology that'll solve the problem. And you have to take the risk that you can, there's a business uh, approach that will actually make impact. But I'd much rather take that risk 
than the risk of I got a technology and then uh, I hope people like it, right? Otherwise, we'd all, we'd all be riding segways if that was the truth. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. David, I like what you said about um, diverse perspectives being really important in design and uh, bringing a lot of people together. And those diverse perspectives could be from our, you know, diverse in, uh, you know, our, our origin story, where we grew up, uh, the way we see the world. It could be our technical or, you know, our craft could be diverse. And um, in your TED Talk, you talked about creative confidence, that it's something that you feel very strongly that more people need to be encouraged and that creative confidence needs to be built up. And we've seen in a lot of companies where, you know, as design is starting to spread throughout the company, there, there are people that are kind of resistant to being part of the process, uh, people that have valuable, important parts to play in the design process. And one of the reasons why they're resistant is because they don't understand it or they have this strong insecurity that I, I don't have the skills or I don't have a place in this process. Can you talk about how uh, in your work at, at the D school, like with your students or even, you know, your work at, at IDEO, how do you foster creative confidence? What can companies start doing to encourage more creative confidence so they can bring lots of different diverse perspectives together? Sure. There's really two uh, really interesting points that you make in there. One is about the diversity and that that diverse, I like what you said, the diversity of all way. I mean, the diversity of how you do things can be just as powerful as, you know, whether you're a male or a female or if you come from a different country or whatever. But but because what we're trying to do is build on each, on the other ideas of the people to get to a place that you if, you, if you have an opera singer and a philosopher and a doctor in the room and they're building on each other's idea, you're probably going to get to someplace unusual because that's never happened before. That's the kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, we have... What's happened for us is that somewhere along the line, kids opt out of thinking of themselves as creative. And I talk about this all the time. And, but, but so, okay, so your question is, how do you get them back? You know, how do you get them back to that confidence so that they'll, you know, you know they'll have, once people have creative confidence, they have like more stick-to-itiveness, they take more risks, they do all the things. Well, what we believe is that the thing that the barrier between people, um, especially these people who have opted out of thinking of themselves as creative, um, there's, it's, it's fear. I mean, it's fear of being judged. It's fear that they'll look stupid. It's fear that they can't do it because, you know, they have friends that are, you know, can paint and play the piano and they can't. And so they have all, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and it's all about fears. And that's where, um, uh, where we can make the most impact. Once we once we decide it's fears and kind of decide what those fears are, then we use a <clears throat> approach that the psychologists call guided mastery. So you have fears. We need to change those fears into familiarity. We need to like get you off of the fear and get you into the kind of familiar feel of what it feels like to be able to um, come up with ideas, routinely innovate. And so all the psychology literature points to the only way to do that really is through a series of small successes, step, you know, like kind of baby steps. You're thinking of yourself as not that way, or you're skeptical, or you're standing back from joining in. Uh, and, and so what we have to do is we have to orchestrate you to have a series of small successes that results 
uh, in you feeling kind of you, that that fear of being judged has gone away. And now you just, you know, you can kind of let your ideas fly because you don't have that uh, that barrier. And the end result is creative confidence or what the psychologists call self-efficacy, which is that you have you have a sense of the world and that you believe you can accomplish what you set out to do. And oh my God, think about how different the world would be if people, you know, had that confidence that they could do what they wanted to do, you know, that it would succeed, they would succeed. Mm -hmm. So great products, uh, they have to do two things to, to be successful. Uh, they have to work really well and hopefully they feel good to use. There's this like emotional component to products that we love that we want to tell people about and, and use often. But, you know, often designers and engineers are at odds. Um, they're sort of like right brain, left brain, kind of this classical dichotomy of two things when they're combined and they work together, they're really powerful, but they, they often are, are, uh, uh, at odds uh, yeah. and, and ha have a hard time cooperating. Um, what, what causes that and how might we mitigate that and start to work together so we can create these balanced products that are very uh, engineering, uh, you know, have solid engineering components and they also are designed well and they feel good to use and they fit into our life. Yeah, you really, you really are uh, you really are breaking that down into three things, which is the kind of conventional design function, the, the kind of human computer interface, or the human, not the computer interface, but the because it's not always a computer. Although we're in Silicon Valley, it seems like it often is. But you know, you have the kind of uh, design, you know, the the kind of magical bits of what it looks and feels like. But you also have the the scenario of use and how easy it is to use and does it. Does it make you feel comfortable using? So often something's hard to use and the, and the user blames themselves. So oh, I'm so stupid, I can't make this ticket machine work or this computer work and stuff. And so there's, uh, you know, there's that. And then there's the pure engineering, the, the implementation, the getting it done in a cost-effective way that, um, that, it's, that it's worth having in the world because some people can afford to buy it, right? And so you have to really have all of those things going at the same time. You know, when we, sometimes when we start a project, we have the business people go in first and try to understand what, how much the market will bear. Once we have a cost target, it limits all kinds of things that we were, all the designers were going to do before. So sometimes we go in and, and, and uh, come up with some extraordinary thing and then try to figure out how to reduce the cost or to, to make it effectively. And so, so, your question is real that is real and it's there and you just have to convince everybody that there's a tension between those two things right there's a tension between extraordinary and sustainable right i mean it that is just there and so i find that if, if uh, both sides of that fight um uh, sign up to the, that it is a tension. We agree. Your stuff's important. My stuff's important. We're going to try to figure it optimize. It's just a constraint that the other person's <laughs> point of view has to be taken into account. And people actually don't mind constraints when they, when they're kind of open-minded and sign up to it. So it's really, um, it's really a, uh, it's really, um, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing of, of a mindset that that we're going to work together to and how clever can we be to get what you want and what I want how cl clever can we be maintaining the 
the, 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 you know, extraordinary bits of the design as we take it all the way through to having that, to uh, getting it made. And um, I, I find that once, once the, the mindset of we're going to work together to do that happens, uh, you know, it, it seems to, it seems to work. Um, there's also the, a beautiful thing that that's happened, of course, is that our focus on humans, our focus on users means there's actually a higher authority. If you can get into a good cycle of prototyping and showing it, that in some ways it's nice. It takes the burden off of the fight of like, no, we should do this. No, we can't. It's too expensive. No, we should do this, that, that kind of stuff. Back Because there's the user. I mean, if you have a customer council and you really... Um, you really trust these people that have that that have helped you evaluate, you know, kind of user testing. They actually decide for you. I mean, you know, you hang a price tag on it. You know, you go into a room and there's a price tag, and you give people a hundred bucks, and you say, "What are you going to buy?" If if the price is too high on your thing and they don't buy it, you know, you got to go back and make it lower. If they love it to death and and the price is not, they're not price sensitive, then you can they can then you can push on the extraordinary side further, right? So. I mean, one of the things to do is to is to have an arbitrator in if you if you want to call that tension there, then you know find an arbitrator that both people sign up to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So having that arbitrator, um, the the people that you're designing for, I think is really important. Is there also a power to 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 the design process and getting teams aligned really early when they start product development? Yeah, sure. I mean, we talk about, you know, we talk about the importance of, of, um, you know, seeking out some, some, um, well, you, what, you're, what you're trying to seeking out is something meaningful, meaningful to the people that you're trying to help. Right. And so by, by getting that alignment, it seems like every, even the kind of most, um, kind of introverted engineer when they go out and meet the person they're trying to help. And it becomes, it becomes a, a passion. It becomes a, a cause rather than something on your to-do list. You, you got it. You know, if you can get to that point where you get, uh, we get the, the project, the problem that you're trying to work on is uh, a cause by the people doing it rather than, you know, uh, you know, kind of data that they're manipulating in order to, to, um, you know, get to a, to kind of, an, uh, you know, a, a solution that's uh, kind of pedestrian, but solves the, solves the spec, right? If it's a cause, then, then they're working on all kinds of things peripherally to that and stuff to kind of, to make that go. So, you know, sometimes it's harder than not, but I really think that that's the, that's the key is to get everybody signed up to understanding what it is that's inspiring about what we're doing, and then uh, then it kind of falls in place. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, 
and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. David, when I visited the D school a couple of years ago, um, I saw something really extraordinary. It was, uh, it's just creative chaos everywhere. There's, you mm-hmm. know, cl- the, the clear evidence that, uh, students were exploring, working through ideas, um, things were, uh, uh, being kind of pushed back and forth. And it's just an, an incredible energy in, in the space, even when there aren't people there. And when I visit, companies, larger companies, or even startups, I see something very different. I see um, most of the time design ideas are trapped in computers and um, on the walls, there's beautiful murals and, you know, there's snack bins and so mm-hmm. forth. And, and there's, there's order uh, because in a larger organization, there's, there's a sense that order is a sign of success. Can you talk about how the way that we design our workspace how it influences our work. 
Yeah, isn't it interesting that you can kind of just walk into a space and immediately have an opinion or and probably you're right about what the culture's like in that space. You know, like is it hierarchical? Does the, do the employees have a high status relative than to senior management? I mean, it's all kind of plays out in the space. My take on it is that it has to do with um, kind of making the space uh, kind of uh, lower the status between the the kind of the people doing the work and the kind of management. And so if you can, uh, you can make that happen. That's why I think we see so much success in these companies. Um, not the only reason, but we see success in these companies where the, the, you know, the people that are, are, uh, trusted with the leadership and the people that are, you know, digging the ditch, um, all are kind of in the same space. And, you know, like it's, a it's the, that barrier is, is gone. I think it's all about having a casual, it has, it's all about having a, a casual feel to the place that makes you okay with being there and, you know, whether, you know, bring your pet or whatever, this whole thing that we used to have where you had to kind of sit up straight in your chair and not eat at your desk and, you know, all that stuff, all those rules, I think stole your creativity. I mean, you know, it's like this, Bob, my mentor Bob McKim had a thing called relaxed attention. I think that's the state you want your your people in is this relaxed attention, not this fear of, you know, like I'm going to get fired kind of feel to the place. So, and you can see that in a, so, you know, at the D school that, you know, they try to get me to put carpet on the floors, but you know, I wanted people able to spill paint or do something on the concrete and they, we, you know, we clean it up easily and they, you know, write on the walls and on the furniture and stuff. It's just kind of, you feel naughty. It's, you know, you're like, uh, you're, you're not in your parents' living room. You're at the opposite of that. You know, you're in a place where you can um, kind of, you know, just be free to, to um, kind of express yourself. So, yeah, I think it's, um, space matters so much. Uh, and, uh, you know, being in a, in a collaborative space where you can see what's going on and when the, UPS guy comes, everybody jumps out and says, Oh, is it for me? You know, it's like, it's like, it's, uh, it's more human in that, uh, that respect as well. But, um, we're, we're really, uh, grateful and, and lucky that, uh, we're back to diversity again, where D school has such diverse people that, um, all you have to do is, uh, kind of put them in too small a space. And then they get to know each other and they find, oh my God, I learned so much from this, you know, this person who, you know, who used to live in a favela in Brazil that happened recently. Um, and wow, what a different life this person's had. And so you're just like, if you have this open mind and this kind of thirst for, for understanding uh, what's going on, then then a space that just, you know, that, that just um, allows for, for uh for this kind of forced interaction or the just interaction. Um, one of the things that's most interesting about the D school culture, which is not all that obvious, is that I call it an opt-in culture. So most places you're there because you're being paid to be there or you have to be there, or you know, it's it's just like you haven't chosen to be there. Whether I, I don't mean necessarily the company or the building, but I mean this part of the building. So the D school really believes strongly in this, uh, get people to do what they want to do and they'll be better at it. And so like the D school, I don't pay the professors. There's, I don't know, 50 or 60 professors a teacher, but I don't pay them, which irritates some of them a lot. But that all I'm trying to do is say, 
look, if you really, really want to teach that class, then um, you're going to be willing to do it on your own time, or you're going to be willing to teach, convince your department that that class should be counted in your teaching load. And the students, they don't get degrees, right? And some, well, you know, the pop-up classes, which is, I think, more than half of our classes, uh, you don't get credit for. So, man, the, the professor's there because they want to be, and the students are there because they want to be. This is a different feel to the place. And so, in some ways, I think you feel that vibe because they want to be there. Contrast that to, you know, corporate America, where, you know, you're there because this you're there because you have to be there to make money so that you can go water skiing on the weekend or whatever your justification for not enjoying your day is. And that's just not going to be of the same vibe as, as when everybody in the room wants to be there. So you've been teaching at Stanford for 35 years. Um, I'm much newer. I've been teaching now. This will be my fourth year, but I'm already starting to see all these benefits from it. Um, both the students I interact with here and then in my own work. And you mentioned the, the exposure to diversity and diverse backgrounds. What are, what are some of the other benefits that, that you get from, from teaching? Um, well, there's, um, there's a huge benefit about age. So, I recently saw at TED last last year, TED's coming up next week, but uh, last year, I think Norman Lear spoke, you know, that is Norman mm -hmm. Lear, a little before your time, Norman Lear. And um, he said, uh, he's like 93, but he's just so full of it, uh, full of life. And uh, the interviewer said to him, Norman, you know, you're 93, but you seem so, you know, young and how old do you really feel? And he said, I feel the same age as whoever it is that I'm hanging around, right? So I basically hang around 20 year olds, you know? Well, my graduate students are about 26, but my main undergraduates are 20. I teach a junior class called Human Values and Design, and there's 80 kids in it and they're all 20, right? So it's pretty, so you kind of, you know, like, I mean, I'm still seen as don't not understanding, but you, you come into the room and there's, you know, 40 skateboards leaning against the wall. I'm thinking, that's different. You know, I drove here in a BMW and parked, you know, in a lot, right? I mean, how different is that? But, um, but uh, no, but it's just, it makes you feel so vital, you know, to know what the kid's thinking and to have them challenge you about stuff and to tease you about, you know, stuff. And, um, and uh I think it's the first time in history that these kids uh, have uh, have the, as high status as they have relative to adults. Because I don't know about you, but like whether my father was better at me than something, he always did it because he was the father. You know, like I was better at tuning the car. I'm sure I cared much more about cars, but he did it. Or I, I had better reflexes driving at night, but I didn't drive. He did, right? I mean, it was just like a, it was a, there's a status difference, right? And now, I mean, with, with my daughter, anything technical, I mean, the kind of complete tech sport, she's in charge. I don't think we've ever had that where the, you know, 15 to 18 year olds have, have a role in the family. That's, that's the highest status you could be in that particular subject. Right. And so, um, so they're, they're, um, they're worth talking to, you know I mean? It's like in, in, and um, I hear their music and I, you know, see what's really important to them. And, you know, I mean, early in my career, I would have a, I would be on some kid about why his project wasn't that good. And he'd say, 
Professor Kelly, this is a three unit class. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, the kid's right. He's got it. He's got another 12 units. I'm just three units. Why am I, you know, like I, you know, and, and I don't know, it's just like you, um, by having that thing, is it? And that's, that's teaching here, but, but you, you mentioned diversity. There's also, you know, I mean, I went and spoke to the kids there in the Saudi Arabian club. I don't know anything about Saudi Arabia, you know, but I did after that. And, you know, the, as I said, this kid came in who was, um, who was raised in a, in a favela in uh, Brazil, and it's totally fascinating. How, think about that. How do you get from? I mean, who paid attention to you enough to get you out of that? And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very proud of Stanford because Stanford pays full ride for anybody like that. Anybody who can get in here who has need gets it taken care of. That problem's taken care of because we're after the best, you know, the best students, not the richest students. Yeah. Right? We might be after the richest students too. I'm not sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so there, there's a Stanford professor, Robert Sapolsky, who did this sort of informal study about, you know, if you haven't had an, a tattoo by age 25, you're probably never going to get one. Yeah. But do you think this, this exposure to, um, to younger people and to more diverse people, um, there's, there's a way to kind of push beyond that? And do you think that has a broader implication given the way that our society is so divided? Yeah, no, I, I, um, I'm trying not to be hopeless about our present situation. You know, I really am. And uh, we're, we're doing a lot of work trying to understand uh, people that have the opposite viewpoint as us. And instead of just thinking of them as not that smart, we're trying to figure out what it is that they really value because we know they're smart, but you know, they just, uh, and so, yeah, I think that this, this uh, trying to understand the, whatever the diverse point of view from yours and being open-minded is, um, is the key. I mean, you know, it's like, it's hard to do as humans. We want to judge, you know, we want to evaluate, we want to like, you know, squash anybody that's our, not our religion, you know I mean? Uh, and so, uh, so it's hard to have that open mindset or what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. Uh, but uh, I it's certainly going to be uh, the way to, um, to kind of solve these big problems. Uh, the, the riff, in the country um, is only way you can do it is understanding of the other. I mean, that goes for both sides, by the way, is understanding instead of just dismissing it, you know, um, you know, and I, and uh, we run to that all the time. One of, one of uh, IDEO's big clients is Planned Parenthood and cho trying, just trying to understand, it's essential to try to understand what's going on with the people that are against it, you know, like really understand that in order for us to, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood is about women's health. You know, it's it's not all about abortion. And so how do we focus on that? You know, kind of. The types of things that you guys work on at IDEO is, is pretty incredible. You know, at first there was this emphasis on physical product design with, you know, great accomplishments like the Apple mouse. And then over the years, the project started to broaden to include things like service design for banks and operational design for hospitals, which is very different than designing a mouse. So <laughs> when did when did you first start to realize that this design toolkit, uh, the way that IDEO operates and, and your processes, that it could be applied to just much broader challenges, things like Planned Parenthood? I think um, I think our uh, clients showed us that way to that. I mean, which makes sense because we're, um, you know, uh, you know, somebody wanted to innovate in the 
what happened for us in, in the best of situations, right, is we surprised the client at how innovative we are, that we come up with something they couldn't come up with. We just had that experience with Ferrari, and I love that when I'm a car guy in the price. And, and the chairman said, you know, thank you very much. You know, we wouldn't have come up with that on our own, right? And that's kind of what we were at, what we were, were after, right? Doing something that's uh, innovative to the point that uh, it surprises the client. Well, once we had these clients like Procter & Gamble and AT&T and some of these we were doing products for, and they said, you know, uh, and we got the notice of the CEO before we, when we were doing products, we were working for the head of engineering, right? Or the head of marketing. And once the, once you got up to a level where the strategic uh, intent of these, of the person in the company was much broader, then they say, well, you know, it, was, it kind of felt like, well, here's some creative guys, let's put them on this other problem. You know, let's put them on this broader problem. We also had the we also had the fortune of you know doing uh, you know projects for lots of those companies which were would be considered um, you know kind of I don't know what we call them strat strategic problems somewhere we what they opened it up to the to the to the broader issues in the company. So I'd say that, I mean, as, as much as we desired, we're, see, basically we, as I said, we're kind of variety junkies. So if you, if you show us something completely new, oh, a service, we haven't ever designed a service before. Oh, what about the experience of checking into the hospital instead of the, you know, the, the defibrillator that we just designed, right? I mean, it, it just kind of happened naturally now. And so what, what, because of our intellectual curiosity and our um, desire for variety, we we had to change the company in order to meet that demand, right? And so we started hiring people who could help us with those projects. So like, um, you know, so one of my favorite projects is this uh, school system in Peru called Innova Schools that we're doing. And we, um, and, you know, in a place like Peru, the whole problem is what it costs, right? I mean, can you can you f do a better education at a price that this kind of middle class or whatever the, what you ever want to call the part of Peru that, that cares about that, um, do that. And so, I mean, it was, uh, engineers would have not been really good at figuring that out, but we have, you know, we have business people on staff and we have, uh, you know, psychologists and anthropologists and education specialists and stuff. And so the thing that, what that drove that interest, that because we had such interest uh, in doing uh, meaningful projects, when they came up uh, and we took them on, it felt good. And we just kept expanding, you know, to the point where, you know, we're, we're doing you know, stuff you, that I can't mention that you would bog your mind, given that I was a guy in the seventies doing work in Silicon Valley, you know, with my company was doing work in Silicon Valley and we were basically designing plastic boxes around computers, right? And um, I think I'd have been happy with that the rest of my life. I mean, that's what we were doing. I mean, I didn't have any higher goal than that, right? And then, you know, my partner, Bill Mogridge, got, uh, you know, who designed the first laptop computer and he took one home and he said, this is terrible. I mean, it was the most beautiful thing. I don't know if you ever seen one of these all magnesium case and just every little detail is gorgeous on it. And, um, and we took one home and it, the software was this on this kind of funny display bubble something display. And, and, but, um, he's the human interface to it was horrible. And he came back on there forget, and he came back and said, this, you know, using this thing is way too important to leave to the engineers, to the software designers. And so he wanted, he, he got us in the business 
of doing interaction design right there, right? And so that's one of the first steps to doing things beyond products was to do uh, interaction design. Mm -hmm. were, were there any challenges in those early, early days of, of IDEO where the, the feature of the company seemed at stake or where you could have maybe gone on a path that, that would have well, ended differently for, thing, for you? Yeah, no, it happens all the time. I mean, <laughs> the the... Design firms tend to porpoise where you have too much work and you have too little work. And that seems to be the case. And my mentor, Bob McKim, when I told him I wanted to start a company, he said, ah, don't do that. Don't do a consulting company. Don't do that. He said, you're going to be like laying people off and all the time and it's going to, you'll have too much work. He was right about that. We never had, you know, we luckily, uh, uh, had, was been all up for IDEO since, since we started mostly. Um, but, um, uh, you always felt like you were about to not make payroll, you know, when you had a downturn. And I can remember not paying myself a lot in those days uh, to do it. But um, every time you like moved from some for to take on some big thing like interaction design or stuff, you know, I wasn't sure we could have that. We had the capacity to do it and we weren't getting a lot of work. I mean, we weren't being hired. But uh, I think what <laughs> the hard part, I, I think we were lucky. And like, once the thing got going, we started doing Apple work and everybody was asking who was doing this work for Apple. And we were their only, you know, we were the, there was no in-house design firm. We were doing the work. And, and once that got started, it was good. The real scary parts were earlier than that, where, uh, I was the only, there were no salespeople. So picture you got a, you got five engineers or 10 engineers, right? And there's no, nobody understands sales, marketing, business, anything. We're just like out there enjoying ourselves, I guess, or scared, one of the two. And I'd go into some CEO's office, I'll never forget, it was guy, the guy's name, but it was a company called All Steel. And um, I said, you know, I'd heard through somebody else that he that they were going to design a new chair and they were taking kind of RFPs on design this chair. And I didn't know what an RFP was, but I went I went in anyways. To, uh, I thought I'd charming him, charm him into it or something. Anyway, and he said, well, thank you. He said, um, why don't you show me uh, the other chairs that you've designed? And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this guy doesn't understand. Not only have I not designed any chairs, I haven't designed anything else, right? <laughs> it's like to speak of. So it's not like my portfolio is weak in chairs. It's just weak, right? And so we really had to sell this notion that we have a process that will result in a chair that's different from the chairs you're getting from the companies that are chair designers, right? And for some reason, you know, more or less that flew uh, and uh, and the company was more stable after that. But there was a time, I, it's probably, you'd have to have, in any company, I think you probably have to have some initial success to keep the things going. It's most vulnerable, right? Right, in the beginning. And, you know, we had our, we've had our times, but, uh, but mostly never been in jeopardy of going out of business. It's not a very high reward business, but it's also not a very big risk business, right? You're not betting the farm, you know, you're not building a factory and trying to make something. And if it doesn't sell, you're out of business. It's not like that. David, you, you've done so many amazing things in your life. Uh, founding IDEO and all the incredible work that you've done there. Uh, founding the D School, all the influence that you know, exponential influence that your students have had on the industry, on the world. Um, and there are many other things. You beat cancer. That's a, a pretty major accomplishment, too. <laughs> yeah, that was tough. It was tough. What, what, what are you most proud of? 
Um, well, uh, to, I mean, uh, I don't know how personal to get, but I'm, I'm actually most proud of, uh, you talk about cancer, I'm most proud of that to the point that uh, the benefit to my daughter. I have one daughter and uh, she's, she's uh, I had my perfect parent moment. She's in college. And uh, so I used to see her every morning. I made her breakfast every morning of her life, basically, that I was around and drove her to school. And so we have a great relationship. And, you know, she got through the cancer thing, which was hard on her. Uh, but uh, she's in college. She's a freshman. And one day I haven't, she never, you know, I don't hear from her at all. Like I used to, I was like, maybe if I get one text every couple of weeks, I'm happy. Um, and so I hadn't heard from her for a while. And I sent her a text and I said, how you doing? And she wrote back, said, she wrote back, dad, I'm happy, period. I thought, oh my God, I've done my job. I'm so proud of that, you know? <laughs> well, and I don't think I've ever said that, that cleanly in my life to anybody, you know? So the fact that she can just say she's happy, um, that that's pretty, that's pretty heady stuff for a dad. <laughs> you know, it's kind of dwarfs, you know, the, you know, the product we made for a Chinese company that, that you know, helps with food or whatever it is. But, you know, there are good, there are good, some, there are some good, projects but uh you know the emotional stuff has to do with uh you know i mean when i sit around this is probably off totally i i do this all the time when i call bird walk right get totally off the subject you can cut this from your podcast but <laughs> but um when i sit around with a bu i'm 66 when i sit around with a bunch of old men and talk about things they have two regrets you know that uh that i don't really have which which makes we're, we're on what makes me feel lucky uh, one is that they almost all, because they were like, captains of industry, they almost all say, um, I didn't pay enough attention to my kids. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I put my career above my kids. I think they're, they're quite uh, sad about that. And the other one was, you know, I did a job that looked good, but felt bad, right? They're lawyers and, and venture capitalists and, and, uh, you know, uh, financial people and, and uh, you know, they did that job not because it was their passion that they were emotionally tied to it. They did it because society said, this is a prestigious job. You'll make a lot of money and, and we you know making money is prestigious. And so um, I, I really feel lucky that I'm not, <laughs> not in any of those two categories. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, David, for, for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much. <laughs>